You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Home of such shows as Subtext, The Projection Booth, and The Daily Meditation Podcast. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. This week we're talking with paranormal researcher and author Richard Estep. Richard has appeared on TV shows such as Haunted Hospitals, A Haunting, and Paranormal Night Shift. He's the author of quite a few books and stories, so you can check the show notes for a link to his author's page. And he's also a paramedic in his day job. We'll be talking about the public's fascination with true crime and the paranormal, as well as how he balances his curiosity about the unknown with the day-to-day life of a paramedic. Monster Talk. Good evening, and tonight we're going to be talking with Richard Estep. He is a paramedic by day and paranormal investigator by night. He's the author of Grifters, Frauds, and Crooks, True Stories of American Corruption, and he's written more than 30 books on topics as diverse as serial killers, demons, UFOs, and haunted hospitals. So welcome to Monster Talk, Richard Estep. 
Thank you, Blake and Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. So I met Richard a couple of years ago at Robert Murch's Ouija board party. So do you remember having Robert on and we talked about Ouija boards? Oh, for sure. And, and the, the, the chairman of the board. Every table at Robert's house is a Murch table. That's awesome. But <laughs> <laughs> Richard, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, to begin with, I wanted to ask you, how did you go from being a paramedic to becoming a paranormal investigator? Well, actually, it was the other way around. Oh, uh, oh. I've, I've had an in, I've had an interest in all things ghostly since I was a, a young boy growing up in England. Uh, my grandparents' house was supposed to be haunted by the the spirit of the former tenant who had uh, died there, and uh, my aunts and uncles, because they were one of those big World War II generation families, had uh, all told stories of this sweet old lady that would tuck them into bed at night while my grandfather was off in Burma. Um, taking care of some unpleasantness in the jungle. And um, it turns out that uh, this was not a flesh and blood person. Um, it was, she met the exact description of the former tenant of the house. And uh, when my grandfather returned home after the war, she stopped putting in appearances. So when I heard those stories, and they were pretty consistent across the whole family, um, I used to sleep in that, that room alone uh, and um, was halfway terrified and halfway excited that she might put in an appearance, but she never did. Aww. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think uh, our interest in ghosts and the paranormal goes back that far as well. So, oh yeah, we've for got sure. that in common. That, that's mm-hmm. a, I think a, recur- a recurring theme on our show has been we look into topics that scare the crap out of us when we were kids. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, all, all the kind of classic stuff. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure some stories you're familiar with, like uh, Bally Rectory and um, Lord Dufferin's ghost story, and oh, yeah. Jeff the Talking Mongoose, and yeah, mm-hmm. we're always talking about that kind of stuff. We are indeed. Uh, those, it, those classic black and white photographs that we all poured oh over. Oh my gosh! Yes, you so know. much time. <laughs> well, the you've rained them all and stuff like that. Yes. Since we're talking about this, you started out as paranormal investigator, moved to paramedic. I we I think everybody I talk to in this field who who writes or podcasts or does video looking into these matters, everybody has that dream of doing this full time. You know, like that that you'll be able to make mm. enough money to do it full time. Well, with the greatest re- respect to people that earn their living doing this, that's not my dream. Oh, I'm uh, quite the opposite. I, I go to work as a paramedic, and uh, I get to make somebody's worst day better. Yeah. And- much as I love chasing ghosts uh, or, or telling stories, you know, I'm a storyteller at heart. Um, I, I would miss that tangible sense of, of having helped somebody on their worst day. And there's just no substitute for that. So uh, I walk a fairly effective tightrope between those two worlds. Um, and it hasn't been career limiting. Being the ghost guy, being, you know, doing four seasons of haunted hospitals on TV with another on the way, I thought that might, you know, um, considering my job might be career limiting. Um, but it, it turns out to have been quite the opposite. So in my ideal world, you know, I'm, I'm not beholden to a TV network to pay my bills. Um, I'm not beholden to my book sales. And um, I would have felt really bad, honestly, had I missed out on COVID. I know that sounds strange. But what I mean is that for most healthcare providers, as, as awful an experience as that was, it was the time when we all banded together when we really pitched in on the front lines. Um, and I would not have missed that experience for the world. And thank you for your service. Yes. And yeah, I guess the best of both worlds. Thank so- you. It's kind of you. I, I do feel that 
it becomes kind of a uh, you're, you're chasing something that's if you're not careful, you can allow yourself to chase the, the kind of fame that goes with the paranormal field sometimes. Parafamous mm. is, is a term, isn't it? And, um, you know, what is it we say in England? Today's news is tomorrow's fish and ship wrappings. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, we certainly see that in skepticism as well as the, the kind of believer paranormal community. Definitely people who are in it for the, the fame, the big fish in a small pond. And what you tend to find, though, is that there's there's not longevity there. I, 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 I work with people whose whose viewpoints are diametrically opposed to mine. Um, and what I love is the people that are in this for the passion of it. And mm. whether they're getting paid or not, they would be out there in some ramshackle old building at three o'clock in the morning trying to find answers or trying to debunk for that matter. You know, those are my kind <laughs> of people. Um, mm. And they're, they're not the kind of people that would not be doing this if there was no paycheck in it. Richard, so you have written so many books. I'm just so impressed by um, your output. And you've written in particular a lot about ghosts and hauntings. And we'd like to know a bit more about your approach to to these. Do you do they involve uh, research or more hands-on investigations? How do you approach these books? Well, bo- both of those. And I hope that Having written since 2014, my first book was published. Uh, it was called In Search of the Paranormal. And my favorite review said, I love how much paranormal there isn't in this book. Um, <laughs> That's <so> nice. <laughs> because nice. it was a more skeptical approach. Yeah. Um, I do love to investigate and I do love to learn new things. So, for example, um, it was a couple of years back, but I was uh, researching a book on uh, a, a place called the Beatty Mansion in St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, which has not been finished yet, the book that is. Oh. <laughs> and um, I had set out a rampart, and Kenny Biddle, um, well known in skeptic circles, of course, had uh, had prompted and said, Why are you not putting that in a Faraday cage? You know, why, why do you trust this device when every stray RF transmission from a, a passing ambulance or fire truck or whatever uh, is going to set this off? And I've just had those terrific moments where. Um, I'm chronicling the story, and then for a moment, I'm part of that story. And I get to kind of share those lessons and then fade into the background and chronicle more. So uh, to answer your question, as I get older and do more of this, I've become more of a chronicler than an investigator because the human interest side of the story is what fascinates me now. Um, I don't expect any of us to prove or disprove life after death, the existence of ghosts, call it what you will. But I am very much fascinated in the lives of those that, you know, walked the halls of these places 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 200 years ago. And so um, I, I do enjoy hearing that some of my books allow people that will never be able to travel to, say, Gettysburg because they live in London, um, mm-hmm. that they feel as if they've been able to go there through the prose that I've written. That's, that's my goal now, to give an accurate and valid accounting and let the readers make up their minds. When you tackle these cases are you getting to do many active cases or is it mostly more historical or is it a blend or how is that working out like i I used to do a great number of help cases blake and um it's interesting um karen you live in in colorado correct yes i do yes and blake i don't know too far from you yeah yeah i live in georgia on the the state georgia not the country so yeah (laughs) so I, i can't speak for you in georgia but um, the help cases I was working on when marijuana was legalized in the state, 
there was a sudden influx of highly questionable help case requests. Highly questionable. Um, nice. yeah. <laughs> you know what? That, that pun, I didn't think of it, but I do love a good pun, so I'll steal it. Uh-oh. Um, and, and so I found that you had you had a handful of very genuine people that wanted help, but there was also a slew of individuals who who wanted the excitement or the fame or they thought we would turn up with a camera crew. Um mm. Or, or, or it was something that was easily explicable after just five minutes of conversation. So I tend to do fewer of those, um, and I'm now more interested in historical locations. Neat. I should mention here um, a little disclaimer that at some point, Richard, you I think did work with my husband, uh, Matthew Baxter, and, and his yes. old team. And uh, so I didn't know you at that point, and I don't think you worked together for very long. But I've certainly heard lots of stories of uh, of groups. I think at one point there were about 150 paranormal groups here in Colorado. Wow! And uh, these groups would be called into people's places, and I mean, they're just all the risks and dangers associated with that. But uh, mm-hmm. certainly, people calling groups in, and then. Uh, Matt's group would turn up and uh, they'd say, well, where are the cameras? So where's where's the crew? Well, you know, and just expecting to be, uh, to appear on television. And yeah, um, I think it's just during the heyday of uh, ghost adventures and ghost hunters and and just everyone wanting to get in on the act. And and to give, to give credit to that team, you know, they, they never turned down a chance to help someone if they thought there was an opportunity. Um, And they made every effort to be uh, an, an open ear to those who needed it, but there seemed to be fewer and fewer valid help cases turning up. And, and exactly that, you know, it was the heyday of ghost hunters and uh, and shows in which K2 meters were waved around. And uh, nobody knew better, including, by the way, me, if we're going to do full disclosure. Um, I've seen it on TV, so it must be true, right? Yeah. Uh, it was kind of the mindset. Well, if the guys on TV are using this tool, then it's got to be, it's got to be a ghost detector, surely. So mm-hmm. I like to think that in some ways the field has come a lot further since then. And I think in other ways it has regressed, which is also, I think, our society and species in a microcosm. <laughs> sure. well, that's funny you mentioned that because I, I, I see I see some shifts here and there in some of the equipment. And that does seem to be driven largely by TV. When mm-hmm. something shows up on TV, suddenly every local group's using it, you know. But, Tiger counters, yeah. <laughs> but I thought that we had pretty much put to bed the idea that orbs were ghosts, and yet they're back. Like I keep seeing more and more people excitedly talking about photos of orbs, and I'm like, okay, come on. I, that is pretty easy to reproduce and show that it's not supernatural. I, um, You know, uh, I never thought I would grow up to be a heartbreaker, Blake, but I did because I took a job uh, at a very famous haunted hotel, which... Um, not that far from where Karen and I live, and I won't name it, but it is a shining example of, um, of uh, the mm-hmm. hotel industry, you know, with a rich Yes, We've, we've <laughs> all been there. Yeah, um, And it, it also has some yeah. very dusty tunnels. It and does. It does. Yeah. As I was doing tours, people would regularly, like clockwork, come up to me excitedly with their phones. And you can see, you know, I, re- I learned to recognize the look. And... Um, they would have used mm-hmm. a flash in those tunnels and look at the orbs. You know, in fact, if you look a little bit closely, you can see there's a face in this one. And you can only break so many of those people's hearts because they genuinely do want to believe 
that this is the spirit. You know, some of them are, are even recently bereaved. Yeah. And, you know, the, the pain mm-hmm. is just tangible and you don't want to destroy their world. Um, I, I know that uh, as, as qualified skeptics, both of you, you there, are, there are ways to offer a rational explanation without savaging somebody's entire belief system. Mm-hmm. And, and it became increasingly difficult for me to give my opinion um, in those cases. So orbs are still with us. And, and the truth is that even though is a, there is a perfectly mundane and rational explanation for 99.999 recurring percent of them, never underestimate the human desire to believe what they want to believe in the face of facts. Solid again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I want to add to, I have been to this place of which you speak and uh, certainly to turn up with a, a group of people who were doing an investigation there pretty quickly, it becomes a kind of Pied Piper situation where people really flock to the, the, the group and uh, just want to be a part of things. It's really uh, just quite a, an amazing phenomenon uh, to, to witness. When I was growing up, I would, you know, go to the local library. There was no reality TV. There were no paranormal shows. So if you wanted to learn about this stuff, you know, you mentioned Bully Rectory. I checked out Harry Price's books four or five times. Um, ah, and, you know, the, <laughs> the age of the gentleman ghost hunter, because unfortunately most of them in print were males, um, uh, which is why I would call it that, uh, in print. And then, you know, you would look at some of the pioneering EVP work of people like Sarah Estep, no relation. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like that was going to be a question of mine. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say Sarah Estep without adding the words no relation to Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but, you know, a true pioneer who does not get nearly the amount of credit she deserves, uh, in my opinion. But, um, you know, those were the, those were the heydays of, 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 I think, paranormal in print. And when I write those books, it's, I think, an attempt to recapture that feeling from my childhood of the kind of books oh. you would read under the covers with a flashlight, you know? Yeah. Oh, us too. And mm-hmm. we're, I think we're also kind of fascinated with the uh, sort of late Victorians and mm-hmm. uh, some of that. Mm-hmm. Things like uh, around the time uh, when Hareward when goes Ki- for real. Hareward Carrington and Nandor Fodor and all these sort of classics, yes. uh, you know, of uh, research. I, I, I'm so I would love to meet those people. And sometimes I just wish my skepticism was all wrong, and I will meet those people. But <laughs> Simon, Simon Peck playing Nandor Fodor in an upcoming movie, which is interesting. I am very excited about that. That's the the new yes. Talking Mongoose movie. Karen and I have, are longtime mm-hmm. fans. Uh, we had oh, Christopher yeah. Joseph on uh, before he did his book, but after he'd done some papers on it. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah. the Cashin's Gap case is just fascinating, isn't it? It really is. Oh, one of our favorites. And uh, we've also uh, done a show on uh, all various shows on Usborne books, haven't we, Blake? Yes, we have. Uh, <laughs> interviewing authors of those books and uh, just yeah, they treat all of those old classic stories and. Well, I mean, you lap it up. they all speak Absolutely. to that longing we have to to know yeah. if there's more to life than just this. You know, what's that? What else is out there? Exactly. You know, and and I, mm-hmm. I, I want it. I want it to be true. Don't you mm-hmm. think they're formative for our generation? Also, they hit you right in the feels at that at just the right age. Yes, I, I wonder yes. what it's going to be like for this. You know, kids growing up today because there's they can get a, a lot more access to so much more. We. Our age, you're, you're around the same age as us, I think. We we would end up, uh, we would be the oddballs for being into this stuff. But now it's so pervasive. It's like mm, and, and, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just I wonder what that's going to be like in you know 15 years or so when these kids are 
doing this work? You know, what will they be doing? Mm -hmm. What will it be like? You know, will I have to get on TikTok to find out? So (laughs) I keep being told that the print is dying. Um, I don't know if that's the case. Um, I know that uh, one publisher told me uh, that people don't want to read about the paranormal because they just want to watch it on TV, which, you know, is not Mm -hmm. entirely true, but it certainly is the the 800 pound gorilla paranormal television which despite there having been some changes lately shows no sign mm-hmm. of going away mm-hmm. yeah we've seen a kind of cycle effect i guess of uh, interest in topics various topics like ufos mm-hmm. and and uh, then then bigfoot and then ghosts but it, everything old is new again everything comes back again mm. it, it does indeed doesn't it and uh I think that fascination, though, has always been there and will always be there. People will always love a good ghost story. The question is just, mm-hmm. do you define a good ghost story? Now, now I know that your your writing takes you into the world of uh, true crime as well as the paranormal. Do you? And by the way, I'm not a true crime guy myself, but my wife loves it so much. So I saw the titles that you've got, and I think. I I didn't get a chance to run upstairs and verify because she's got so many books, but I, I'm pretty sure at least two or three of yours are on the shelf up there. So that's kind of cool. Um, oh, cool. But I wanted to ask, uh, so you do true crime, you do ghosts. Have you crept into the cryptozoology world at all? Is that of interest to you? You know, I would love to. My My entire writing career is very easily summed up of – me saying yes to writing things I'm fascinated about and people sometimes paying me to look over my shoulder. Nice. So um, I'd written a book about Colorado UFOs called Cunningly Colorado UFOs. Clever. Um, And I knew little about it. And then that ended up with me being on a mountainside in Evergreen, Colorado at midnight with some people who said that they could communicate with an alien spacecraft, which, spoilers, if you're going to read the book, they couldn't. Um, but it was, it was just a, quite the adventure. And I got to delve into that, that whole field, you know, um, I would love to do something on cryptids. My next book for Llewellyn, um, is titled in search of demons. I have very strong opinions on this subject. Um, as I suspect mm. you both do as well, but I am fascinated mm. by them as a cultural phenomenon, as much as a potentially, you know, um, spiritual phenomenon. So, I'm essentially getting paid not a lot of money, but still um, to go and figure out, to try and figure out why in the 21st century with the entire repository of human knowledge at our fingertips, we believe in demons and that they are so apparently prevalent. So um, everything I write is just me attempting to educate myself on something and bring the reader along for the ride. I just wanted to comment on you writing about uh, UFOs and, and Colorado. The UFO culture is just so interesting here. Uh, just so many strange characters. Um, and what I what I came to conclude from the book was I don't know how much of this I believe, but I do not mm-hmm. doubt that they believe. Then there are all the fantastic claims about DIA and the the, the marketing yes. people at Denver Denver International Airport are just mm-hmm. winning. Um, I'm mm-hmm. sure you've been there lately, Karen. Yes, yes. And, and the claims that uh, the, the Braille writing uh, in various places is an alien writing system. And 
uh, yeah, I mean, I think that they've really capitalized on it there at DIA, and uh, I think they lean into it. Just they really for fun. did. What I was referring to was this fantastic series of, of posters they have for the construction. And there was one I saw last week that just had me dying. And it said, we apologize for the delay. It takes a long time to build an underground Illuminati base. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reptilians keep stealing our tools. Oh. And it's like, oh, well done. Well done, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you sometimes during investigations get a little flack for being skeptical or questioning this stuff. Do you get uh, any pushback from your readers or fans when you, when you sort of discover things aren't what they seem? I try very much to offer both perspectives on this. Oh, I shouldn't say both as if there are only two. Um, but I try and offer, if something appears to be paranormal, I will try and offer a non-paranormal explanation for it. You know? So, um, and I think the readers that stick with me appreciate that. They have their own beliefs. And I would say the vast majority of my readers are not skeptics. Um, that's, but, but they do, I think, appreciate that I don't simply take everything at face value. There was one TV show I was working on, for example, and uh, the, uh, the producer reached out to me. And he said, hey, Richard, um, can you think of a situation in which uh, a person was, a murderer was haunted by the spirit of someone they killed? And I said, well, the one that springs immediately to mind is Al Capone, um, who supposedly his cell in Alcatraz and Eastern State Pen both, you know, were haunted by the phantom voices of all the men he'd had murdered. And I could hear typing going on in the background as I'm as I'm talking. <laughs> and then I said, now, let me tell you what, what syphilis does to the human brain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Indeed. so, you know, I laid out both alternatives and I said, I'm not telling you what to think. But I am offering a very plausible medical explanation as to why the man might be tormented by voices. Mm -hmm. So you, you go with what you want. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I try very much to walk that line. You know, I have my opinions, but I don't want to force feed them to anybody. I'll state them and then offer alternatives. And I'll say, here's where I think the evidence leads. Um, but but you decide. Uh, I wanted to ask about one book in particular, Richard. Uh, your book on the Black Monk of Pontefract. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I came across a review. I hope you don't mind me reading this out. Um, I mean, I think our listeners would enjoy this anyway. But I think it gives some insight into your writing style. Uh, but this review stated, I usually enjoy Mr. Estep's books. However, this book, in my opinion, was not one of his best. After pushing myself to read it until the end, it seemed as though he wasn't quite ready to let it end and rattled on about scientific stuff. I enjoyed reading about the house. All the other science info really killed it for me. So I thought. You, yeah, <laughs> you can't please all the people all the time. Um, I, I co-wrote that book with Bill Bungay, who, was owner, who is owner of that house. And Bill um, has often been accused, as many location owners are, of simply being in it for the money. Um, and, mm. you know, uh, also of faking it for the money. So Bill never asked me for a penny to go into that house. I, I moved in, was given complete access. Um, and he said, just write what you find. And if nothing happens, say that nothing happens. You don't have a book. You have at best an article. But he, mm. he wanted to take great pains to try and examine multiple possible hypotheses for why the house had all of these claims of paranormal phenomena. And so that book is longer than many of my other books, largely because of Bill's input. And I really respect him for wanting to 
put forward as complete a case as he could with multiple possible hypotheses. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing. And I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Very open-minded. That's the, the spirit that we are in as well but can we talk a little bit about the story i think that uh, blake and i've been talking about wanting to treat this in, in much further um but more in depth but uh, if you could just kind of give us an overview of that story because it's so interesting absolutely and if you ever want me to connect you with bill um as a possible guest for the show i'd be happy to do it um the black monk of pontefract case was one of england's most famous i think it actually was britain's most famous poltergeist case until enfield um, and as many of these cases uh, tended to be, it took place in a very ordinary looking house in the town of Pontefract. Um, the, the apparition of a large, inhumanly large black monk was seen emerging from a wardrobe in the house one night, scared this family to death. And the phenomena supposedly became increasingly uh, more intense and increasingly violent. Um, at one point, allegedly dragging the daughter of the house upstairs by her ankles, um, the, uh, the, as they used to say back then, the head of the family, uh, Joe Pritchard, the man of the house, as it were, um, was a miner. So he was a very rough and ready kind of chap, didn't believe in ghosts. Um, and they had a coal hole in that house, which, um, anyone that grew up in Britain in the seventies, it's, it's the kind of place where you kept your coal, um, because miners were partially paid in coal. It was a, a benefit of the job. He went into there one day and was beaten, um, pretty seriously by something he couldn't see an invisible force. More than that, and those who knew him actually said that he was a changed man after that experience. His entire paradigm shifted. Now, what's fascinating about that house is I read it in I read about it in Colin Wilson's book Poltergeist, which is a classic genre. Mm. In mm. fact, it really is the the backbone of that book, in my opinion. 
But um, what, what's truly fascinating is, as we all know, poltergeist cases are the shooting stars of the paranormal world. They, they burn very brightly and then they fizzle, you know, in a matter of months. It's rare to find a poltergeist mm -hmm. case that's measured in years. The black mm -hmm. monk house um, seemed to go dormant, seemed to go quiescent. Um, and then a movie was made uh, in 2012, I want to say, called When the Lights Went Out. And the reason Bill came to own the house was that he produced that movie and just said one day, I wonder what happened to the actual house, because they shot it on sound stages, obviously. And he was able to uh, he was on the market and it was a very reasonable price. Nobody was um, nobody was interested in buying it because most people weren't aware of its history. It's it's addresses 30s drive in Pontefract, but that wasn't very well known back then. So Bill bought it with the intent of hosting the premiere of the movie for journalists in the house. That was his gimmick. And quickly Bill discovered that he did not like to spend time alone in the house because very odd things would happen to him when he was there. Um, object apportation, objects appearing out of thin air, flying through the air, things like that. So the house is now, I think, one of Britain's most controversial and popular haunted houses. It's very feast or famine. People that emerge from a night at 30 East Drive usually have absolutely nothing whatsoever happen to them, or they have the most hair-raising stories. Um, so it remains, I think, a case of, of national and international interest. The, the interesting thing is, though, there is not a shred of evidence whatsoever that the backstory of the Black Monk of Pontefract is true. The, the story that first made it into print in, in Colin's book is the idea that there was this, this monk who had uh, supposedly molested a young girl and was, um, was caught by the local townsfolk, was um, basically killed at their hands and his body dumped into a well on what is now the site of 30 East Drive. The, the idea that you would poison your own drinking supply makes zero sense to me whatsoever. But, but this story persisted for years. Um, turns out there's not a shred of evidence to support it at all. So I do believe the story literally took on a life of its own. And um, mm. all, all these years later, the Black Monk continues to, to fascinate. Yeah, these stories certainly do take on lives of their own. Uh, but I think this is a good segue, talking about people's personal experiences and you having stayed at, at that residence. Mm. Richard, have you ever had any personal paranormal or paranormal-like experiences? And, and we have, so we're not judging. Yeah, we're not, don't be <laughs> embarrassed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, 30 East Drive was the most frightening house I've ever visited, but for, for definitely non-paranormal reasons. Um, yeah, I've had a number of things happen to me that um, I think stretch the bounds of coincidence. You know, um, a, a good example would be when I saw uh, very clearly um, a, a figure at the old South Pittsburgh Hospital in Tennessee a few years back, um, which I was convinced I was looking at one of my colleagues until I brought up my flashlight and uh, there was nobody there. Now, of course, it's possible my eyes were playing tricks, you know, tired eyes, low light conditions. But this was just a little too sharp and too clear for that. Um, so that would be one of the things that I first think of. We've had um, quite a few weird things in our lives. I think uh, I, the, I'm especially sympathetic of people who wake up and see shadow people, which on the one hand you know, what does that mean? I don't know. But on the other hand, it's so common. Mm -hmm. It's happened to me twice. And it's like, I, mm -hmm. I'm extreme. I don't think it's supernatural, 
but I know it happens to me. I see it. <laughs> and it yeah. Hypnagogic, hypnopompic, you know, sleep yes. paralysis, all those things. Uh, it, it gets to where, like, when someone starts to tell a ghost story and they begin with, I just woke up from a nap. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Don't tell go. me that. Tell me you were standing in the kitchen in a sunny day, you know. Right. I just, yeah. <laughs> but I, I do also think that we, um, perhaps not you guys, but certainly the paranormal community uh, of believers, we are all, and I've been guilty of this as much as anyone, we're a little too quick to default uh, default to the it's dead people explanation. Mm. Um, mm. I was in uh, I was doing a charity investigation a few years back in a town called Cripple Creek here in Colorado, up in the oh, jail, yeah. and I was locked in one of the jail cells with somebody else standing in the doorway. One of my fellow investigators uh, was taking reference photographs on the cell block came into my cell and just turned white. The, 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 the cliche, you know, you look like you saw a ghost. And he looked at me and I said, what is wrong? And he said, how did you get back in there? I said, well, what do you mean? I've been here for the last half hour. He said, no, you haven't. You were, you were outside. You were just outside. I saw you. And he, he, he's adamant that he saw a fully 3D realized version of me who obviously I'm not dead. Um, unless this is the sixth sense and none of you have told me. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but what was interesting is that when we, we sat him down and got him to write down his recollections, he recalled I was wearing a different colored shirt. Same pants, same mm. shoes, uh, as far as he paid attention anyway. Same haircut, same appearance, different shirt. So, you know, um, it's so easy to jump to the we are seeing spirits of the dead, apparitions, call them what you will. That, to me, has kind of a weirder connotation to it by far. Yeah, you know? that's... Uh... Uh, kind of uh, reminiscent of the doppelganger, which also reminds me a bit of the Banshee, mm. which maybe they're ghosts, but they seem to have some other purpose beyond just issuing a warning or reenacting or whatever else they might mm. be doing. They seem to be we we attribute more, mm. you know, uh, not necessarily malice, well, but like that, like they portend something. True. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know that mm. that's folklore, isn't it? And that's a marvelous, rich vein of folklore, but. What fascinated me was, and I don't recall the actual color of the shirt, but let's say that he saw me in a blue shirt. What if I were to return to that location wearing a blue shirt at some point in the future? Or a golden white shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, it kind of makes you wonder. Oh, time about... travel. I see what you're going for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. a little time slip. Yeah. Garden of Versailles thing, but on a much smaller scale. So. I, I think that we are very, you know, we jump to conclusions. We'll say ghosts, stop with it. We'll, we'll find something that fits. But the mm -hmm. truth to all of this may be far stranger. And what I'm really happy to see right now is that when I first started doing this and going to events, to conventions, um, you had UFO people in their corner and quote unquote ghost people in their corner and cryptid people, never the twain shall meet. And now we're mm -hmm. all talking and we're all cross, you know, pollinating our interests. And it's starting to look, at least based on the conversation I'm having, that there are some very common factors to all of these reported fields of phenomena. You know, so yeah. I almost wonder if it's not a, a big umbrella phenomenon that we're seeing from slightly different angles. That is an idea that comes up a lot lately. Uh, this this mm -hmm. interdisciplinary. Anyway. Yeah, well, th that's yeah. the thing. We we've talked before uh, a lot, and I so I don't want to repeat myself too much, but the the idea that 
you could take a different discipline and come to this topic and you'll get a different kind of answer. So a sociologist, an anthropologist, a biologist, a physicist, a folklorist, a religious studies person, all these different sort of lenses that you can put onto the topic. And beyond the question of is it, I'm air quoting, real, is, is, is what does it mean and why does it happen? Like all of these fields would have different explanations or different ways of slicing it up. And I think that's that multidiscipline approach is the only way to get a really robust and full picture of what's happening. I couldn't agree with you more. It reminds me of my medical career because – I once uh, I had a bad back once I blew out my L5 S1. Mm. And, um, so I, I, I sought advice from people. Uh, I, I talked to a surgeon who said, you need surgery. Well, of course. I talked to a chiropractor who said you need an adjustment. I talked. <laughs> I, I even attempted acupuncture, which worked in that it made my hand hurt more than my back for a moment. So there was mm. that, I guess, when they stick needles <laughs> in my hand. But my point is that um, when you're a surgeon, you know, surgery is the solution. You're, you're a hammer, mm. problems a nail, right? Um, mm. And in medicine, there is a move now. The multidisciplinary care team is key. You need somebody who's thinking about surgery, sure. You need somebody who's thinking about sepsis. You need somebody who's thinking about um, metabolite issues. You need a cardiologist, you know. Um, and so mm. a true, robust medical care team is multiple disciplines. And I think the more we approach that in our field of endeavor, I think the better it will be for all of us. Yeah, no points in reinventing the wheel. Absolutely. And I think that holistic approach, and wouldn't it be cool? I mean, that would make its own TV show if you had like the cross, instead of just having interesting people, you also had interesting people with cross discipline. So it's like an elite task force and they're gonna have to have those different views and find ways that they mesh and where they don't you know that that, that could be really interesting it comes with its own built-in drama too it really does yeah yes oh yeah <laughs> we're running out of time but i want to make sure you get a chance to talk about your latest book uh which is grifters Fra this is your latest one right grifters frauds and crooks Yes, released this week. Well, that is very recent. <laughs> very recent, yeah. These topics are about con men and scams, and we talk about some of that stuff occasionally. And it does seem like there's a lot mm -hmm. of crossover. Can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about, first of all, what the book's about, and then how this sort of – do you see parallels and crossovers between how you would uh, tackle solving these? Absolutely. I mean, I, I did not pitch this book. The publisher, um, Visible Inc., who I love working with, they will they will pitch projects my way, and if it's something that I find interesting, I will write it, um, whether you know uh, whether I'm skilled in, in it or not. I will go spend months poring over research materials and different sources to to learn about the subjects and share that with the reader. And the pitch to me was a history of the United States viewed through the lens of corruption. And oh wow. <laughs> which everybody that I tell that to says, well, that's not a hard book to write. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we can all agree with that. Right. So, you know, there, there are the obvious things that need to go in there, such as politics, but then you look mm -hmm. at organized religion, you look at big pharma. And then I went back and, you know, I, I looked at, um, cases like, uh, 
the, the American Civil War, uh, this fascinated me. When you have certain unsavory characters that are given command um, of an entire army, um, you look at things like every administration, uh, all the way back to Washington himself, had these various scandals. And the scandals that rocked Washington's White House would not get you three column inches today. You know, uh, so it, it, we look at the way the nature or I looked at the way the nature of corruption kind of changed throughout the years, throughout the generations. And it's just a fascinating, I hope to me, it was researching it anyway, romp through American culture um, ending pretty much in the present day. Um, I looked at uh, when it came to the political realm. Um, I know it's an unsavory topic. I looked at the left. I looked at the right. I looked at the mafia. And uh, I know which of the three I would like to see running the country <laughs> uh, without naming it. I know who seems the most competent of those three. Um, but, but, you know, it, it was just really fascinating opportunity to go look at some of these strange corners of American history and why people are motivated to start religions for money or for power. You know, why would people start cults? How does a Ponzi scheme come to be a thing and who falls for it? Um, who risks their freedom to get their kids into the right college? You know, no things kidding. of that nature. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was the book. And it was, um, it certainly was easier on my psyche than writing about serial killers, I'll say that. Nice. Mm. Good. Mm. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, lots of interesting topics there for our listeners, for sure. I'm sure they'll go out and, and grab a copy. Yeah, we'll put a link so, in the show notes. Yeah, yeah. Richard, it has just been such a pleasure to talk with you on the show today. We've got one final question that we'd like to ask all of our guests, and that is, what's your favorite monster? Mm, and I can pick one of the universal monsters, I feel, but that would be too easy. Um, I am going to go with the Kraken. All right. But, but very specifically, <laughs> Ray Harryhausen's Kraken from Clash of the Titans. That is a because, fine choice. Yeah, <laughs> takes me right back to my childhood. Yeah, uh, yeah. That's, like approved. <laughs> I, it literally just came up, Clash of the Titans, like 30 minutes before this show. I was listening to a different show and they referenced it. It's it's classic. It's 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 iconic. I, I remember when it came out, and you know, it the, the toys from it weren't as popular as, uh, you know, Star Wars and some of the other stuff. But man, that Kraken was a brilliant bit of creature design harry Housen is such a hero so <laughs> yes and, and sent how many kids to learn about greek mythology because of that movie and weirdly stop motion photography i mean which may be a dying art because of you know computers but mm. it teaches you so much when you go i'm gonna make my own stop motion and then you know <laughs> hours and hours later you've made 10 seconds of motion right <laughs> If you have the patience, it's a wonderful field it, of endeavor. It is. It is fantastic. And I use it to teach my kids, you know. They understand all this stuff better about how the movies are made and how monsters work. And I think maybe as a kid, I don't know if you were like this as a kid, but I would always want to – I want to see the monster movies, but I also want to know how they were made. And is that because I wanted to not be scared of the monster? I don't know. But I've, I, it's a lifelong hmm. companion topic to me is, is you know, for fictional monsters – Yes, I mean, the monsters from Aliens, they're terrifying, but, you know, mm. how did they do that? You know, and it's its like when you find <laughs> out, it's that's just as interesting to me as the, the terror of the film. And I don't know. I love all sure. that. So, mm. 
Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us, Richard. This was really fun. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with author and investigator Richard Estep. His latest book is Grifters, Frauds, and Crooks, and a link to that as well as to his Amazon's authors page are in the show notes. Richard and I will both be attending DragonCon in September 2023, so if you're there, be sure and find us. Hopefully, we'll also be able to meet up in person, he and I, which is a rare treat for the sequestered life of the Work From Home podcaster. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you for making our show a part of your listening life. Monster House presentation.